0: Sitting under a cedar of Lebanon half an hour later, stuffing foam shrimp after foam shrimp into my mouth, I mused on fate. Maybe I was brave, in a certain sort of way. It took courage to be deceitful and dishonest and conniving and wicked, more courage than it took to toe the line. The late summer light was lovely on the lawns and lake. There were more fruit salads than a bag of flying saucers left in my blazer pocket. Fry. When the name was called with such rolling menace, it could only mean Pollock. Pollock the head boy with raven-black hair and a sadistic hatred of all things Fry the Younger. He came round from behind the tree and had snatched the bag from out of my hand before I knew what was happening. So, we've been to the village shop again, have we? No, I said indignantly, we have not. Don't bother lying. Shrimps, "'Milk bottles, flying saucers, and blackjacks. Do you think I'm an idiot?' "'Yes, I do, Pollock. I do think you're an idiot. I haven't been to the village shop.' He struck me across the face. "'Don't be cheeky, you little creep. Empty your pockets.' Because of that fall at Chesham Prep, my nose has always been immensely sensitive to the slightest percussion. The least strike will cause tears to spring up. In those days the tears were added to by the humiliating realisation that they looked like real tears. Oh, for God's sake, stop blubbing and empty your pockets. There is nothing like a false accusation to cause even more tears. How many times do I have to tell you, I howled, I haven't been to the village shop. Yeah, 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 sure you haven't. And what have we got here, then? If the memory weren't so absurdly anachronistic, I could almost swear that Pollock ripped open one of the flying saucers and put his tongue to the sherbet, like a Hollywood cop tasting white powder. But it's not from the village shop! It's not! It's not! There was no getting through to this idiot. Christ, you for the high jump this time, said Pollock, turning away with all my spoils. As he spoke, we both heard the bell ring for tea, "'he looked up towards the main school buildings. "'By the ships, straight after tea,' he grunted and stumped up the hill. "'How strange that the phrase, "'by the ships, has only just come back to me. "'At one end of a corridor, "'the other end of which led to the headmaster's study, "'there were two model battleships mounted in glass cases. "'A prefect who sent you to see the headmaster always said, "'by the ships, after lunch, or, "'one more squeak from you and you'll be outside the ships.' "'Odd that I didn't remember those ships earlier on in the telling of the story. "'I think one of them may have been H.M.S. Hood, but maybe I'm wrong. "'I'm certain, too, that they had red paint on the funnel, "'which seems unlikely in a Royal Naval vessel. "'Perhaps they were cruise-liners. "'Whatever they were, they spelled disaster. "'With rising panic I stumbled up after Pollock, "'screaming at him that I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't been to the village shop.' "'I heard only answering echoes of laughter "'as he disappeared into the school. "'I heard a small voice at my elbow. "'What's the matter, Fry? "'Whatever is the matter?' "'I looked down to see the anxious brown eyes of Bunce "'blinking up at me. "'I wiped a sleeve across my snot-running nose "'and tear-stained cheeks. "'I could not bear it that one who so admired me "'should see me in such a state. "'As I was wiping that sleeve,' the idea came into my head fully born and fully armed. The speed of its conception, birth, and growth almost took my breath away. I had followed Evans earlier in the afternoon all the way from the electric fence to Cromie's study without being able to think of any defence to any accusation, and now, in deeper trouble by far, a rescue plan had emerged in a second. It was complete in my mind before I had even removed the sleeve from my face. As Biggles, never tired of telling his comrades, "'There is always a way. Always. No matter how tight the squeak, and remember, chums, we've been in tighter squeaks than this. There is always a way out. Algy, look lively and pass me that rope.' "'Pollocks just caught me with a load of tuck from the village shop,' I said in a low voice, laden with doom. Bunce's eyes rounded still further. I could tell that the glamour and exoticism of village shop tuck frightened and fascinated him. This was by now at least his second year, I suppose, but somehow, like little Arthur in Tom Brown's school days, he was always functionally the youngest boy in the school. I remember that earlier on this summer term a master had casually pointed out to him that he had turned up to a P.E. lesson in white blimsolls instead of black, and he had gone redder than a geranium and wept and wobbled for days afterwards his sixth term at the school. He hadn't even been close to punishment or the gentlest chastisement, but it was his first ever deviation from the letter of school law, and it had upset him deeply. "'Golly,' he said, "'didn't you get the whack last week for—' "'Exactly,' I said, interrupting. The thing was to keep the little chap off balance. "'And Cromie said if I was caught again I would be expelled.' "'Expelled?' Bunce breathed the word in a terrified whisper, as though it were nitroglycerin that might explode if handled too roughly. I nodded tragically. I don't know what my mother and father would do if I were expelled, I said, sniffing a little sniff. But why? Why? Because it would upset them so much, of course, I said, nettled by such denseness. No! No! "'I mean, why did you go to the village shop again "'if you knew you would get expelled?' "'Well, I mean, really, some people. "'It's it's hard to explain,' I said. "'The thing is, never mind why, there's just no way out. "'That's the point. "'Pollocks confiscated the evidence, and he's going to—' "'My voice trailed off in sudden wonderment "'as an idea seemed to catch hold. "'Unless that is—unless? "'Unless what?' "'No, no, it's asking too much,' I said, shaking my head. "'Unless what?' squeaked Bunce again. "'It's no good. I'd better face it, I'm done for.' "'Unless what?' Bunce almost stamped the ground in his desperation to be told. "'Well, I was thinking that if I could say that I hadn't been to the village shop, but that I'd got the tuck from someone else.' I let the thought hang in the air. "'You mean,' said Bunce, "'that if a boy said that he was the one who had been to the village shop, not you, "'then you wouldn't be the one who had been, and you wouldn't be expelled.' "'I didn't bother to follow the literal meaning of that peculiar sentence, "'but assumed he was along the right lines and nodded vigorously. "'Trouble is,' I said grimly, "'who on earth would do that for me?' "'I watched, with the detached and curious interest of the truly evil, "'as Bunce blinked, bit his lip, swallowed, bit his lip, and blinked again. "'I would.' "'he said at long last. "'Oh, no!' I protested. "'I couldn't possibly ask you. "'I mean, you're far too—' "'Far too what? "'Well, I I mean, everyone knows you're a bit of a—' "'You know.' "'I allowed myself to stumble, too tactful to finish the thought. "'Bunce's face grew dark. "'A bit of a what?' he said in something close to a growl. "'Well,' I said gently, "'a a bit of a goody-goody.' He flushed and looked at the ground. I may just as well have charged him with complicity in the Holocaust. "'It's okay,' I said. "'I'm the idiot. I don't know what it is with me. I just can't help being bad.' He looked up at me, suddenly and for the first time annoyed with himself, because he just couldn't help being good, which is what I had wanted him to feel. "'Christ, I'm smart,' I said to myself. "'Perhaps this is what is meant by approaching genius.' Do I know how to play a person like a fish, or do I not? I could see that Bunce was coming to an independent decision, or rather, that he believed he was coming to an independent decision. What's got to happen, Bunce said, in a voice firm with resolution, is that you've got to tell Mr. Cromie that it was me who went to the village shop. Me, not you. Oh, but Bunce, no, that's what you've got to do. Now come on, or we'll be punished for being late for tea as well. "'Good Christ, Fry!' Cromie yelled, pacing up and down the study like a caged Tasmanian devil. "'Not an hour after I congratulate you on your nerve, then you're back here proving to me that it's not nerve, it's cheek, it's rudeness, it's bloody insolence.' I stood on the carpet, biding my time. Did I? "'Or did I not, boy, warn you last time "'that if you dared so much as to smell that blasted shop again "'I would have your guts for garters? "'Well?' "'But, sir, answer me, damn you. "'Did I or did I not?' "'But, sir, I haven't been to the village shop.' "'What?' "'Cromie stopped mid-stride. "'Are are you trying to tell me—' "'He gestured towards the bags of confiscated sweets on his desk.' "'It simply amazed me that the thought hadn't crossed his mind "'to check his own stash in the secret drawer. "'Maybe he had forgotten all about it. "'No, sir, I was eating those, but—but what? "'You picked them off a tree? "'You fished them out of the lake? "'I wasn't born yesterday, you know.' "'I wasn't born yesterday. "'Pull the other one. "'Have your guts for garters. "'Don't try to teach your grandmother to suck eggs. "'Pull your socks up. "'Buck up your ideas.' "'I wonder if schoolmasters still talk like that.' "'No, sir, it's just that I didn't go to the village shop.' "'What do you mean?' Cromie almost clawed the air in his frustration. "'What on earth do you mean?' "'Well, sir, what I say, sir, "'are you trying to tell me that someone else gave you those sweets?' "'I nodded. At last he understood.' And who, may I ask, is this charitable person, this extraordinary philanthropist, who visits the village shop just so that he might bestow sweets on his friends like some benevolent lord of the manor distributing largesse to his Hm? Who might this person be? I, I don't like to sneak, sir. Oh, no. Oh, no, you don't. "'Cromie wasn't buying that one. "'If you don't want your promised six strokes, "'then you had better tell me and tell me this minute.' "'My lower lip wobbled as the betrayal was wrung from me. "'Well, well sir, it was Bunce, sir.' "'I do not believe I have ever seen a man more surprised.' "'Cromie's eyebrows shot up to the ceiling "'and his lips went instantly white. "'Did you just say "'Bunce!' he asked in a hoarse whisper of disbelief. "'Sir, yes, sir.' "'Bunce, as in Bunce?' I nodded. Cromie stared at me, eyeball to eyeball, for about five seconds, as if trying to pierce through into the very back of my soul. He shook his head, strode past me, flung open the door, and yelled in a voice that thundered like Krakatoa, "Bunts! Bunts!" "'Somebody find me, Bunce!' "'Oh, dear!' one of the parrots remarked, "'kicking the husk of a nut out of its cage. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear!' "'I waited, standing my ground, "'as I listened to the cries for Bunce echo round the school "'like calls for courtroom witnesses. "'During tea I had looked across at Bunce's table from time to time.' He had been listlessly pushing fried bread into his mouth like a condemned man who has chosen the wrong last breakfast. When he had looked up and happened to catch my eye, his cheeks had blazed scarlet, but his head had nodded emphatically up and down, and his mouth had formed the word, Yes. I had no doubts about my Bunce. Bunce was brave, and Bunce was true. Within three minutes, Bunce was beside me, on the carpet in Cromie's study, his hands behind his back, his mouth set in a firm line, but his legs wobbling hopelessly in their shorts. "'Bunce,' said Cromie sweetly, "'Fry tells me that this was as far as he managed to get.' "'The dam burst, and the torrent filled the room. "'Sir, it's true, sir. "'I went to the village shop, sir. "'I went. "'I did. "'I did go there. "'Fry went. "'I didn't. "'I mean, I went. "'Fry didn't. "'I went to the village shop. "'Not Fry. "'I got the sweets for him. "'He didn't buy any. "'It was me. "'I bought them all. "'I went to the village shop. "'I went to the village shop. "'I did!' "'All this came at a pace that made Cromie blink with astonishment. "'It ended in a howling cyclone of weeping that embarrassed us all. "'Fry, get out.' Said "'Sir, does that mean—' "'Just go. Wait outside. I shall call for you later.' "'As I closed the door, I heard Bunce's voice squeaking out the words. "'It is true, sir. Every word. I went to the village shop, and I'm so sorry, sir. I shan't ever again.' "'There were too many people milling about to allow me to stay near and eavesdrop. "'The great cry for Bunce had fascinated the school. "'What's up, Fry?' Everyone wanted to know. I shrugged my shoulders as if I didn't care, and walked to the end of the corridor, down towards the ships. Higher up the wall, above the Hood and the Dreadnought, or the Invincible and the Repulse, or whatever they were, were wooden panels where the gilt names of scholars and other great achievers had been painted. I stood and looked at them. Lepoidovin, Winship, Mallet, De Vere, Hodge, Martineau, and Hazel. "'I wondered for a brief second if my name would ever be up there, "'but dismissed the idea at once. "'I knew that it would never be. "'This was a list of the names of those who had joined in. "'They had gone on from being captains of rugger and captains of cricket "'to being captains of school and captains of industry. "'I wondered if, in a phrase that Major Dobson loved, "'they had also become masters of their fate and captains of their soul.' "'Are you a major of your soul, then, sir, and is that better than being a captain of your soul?' I remember I had asked him this once, when he had read that Whitman poem to us, and he had smiled cheerily at the question. I had loved Major Dobson, because he had been a good teacher, and because, in that strange and inappropriate way the children have, I had felt sorry for him.' I think my mother had taken me to see a production of Rattigan's Separate Tables at the Maddermarket Theatre in Norwich when I was quite young, and since then I had always associated majors with disappointment, regret, and that awful phrase, passed over. Not bad for a passed-over major, Colonel Ross says to Major Dolby in the Ipcrest file. In fact, I now know Major Dobson had been captured by the Germans with the British Expeditionary Force at Dunkirk. He then escaped and fought throughout the war, right up through Sicily and Italy. True to the old cliché, he never talked about it. No more than did Mr. Bruce, who had spent the war years in a Japanese internment camp, and taught history and divinity with the panache and brio of an ancient fabulist. Being fiercely Scottish, the history he taught with such passion was of William Wallace, the Montrose Rebellion, and the Jacobite Wars of 1715 and 1745, I have special reason to bless Jim Bruce, as you will discover later. I discovered these and other biographical details only two weeks ago, when Aunt Cromie kindly sent me a list of answers to a cartload of questions about Stout's Hill. Charles Knight, who taught me Latin and Greek, and looked like Crippin the murderer, but was the kindest and gentlest man who ever taught me, a man who loved to teach, had no interest in discipline or punishment whatsoever, and took immense pride in my taking the school's senior Greek prize when I was twelve. I have it still, the collected works of John Keats. He fought in the desert, and in Italy, too. "'I remember so clearly history lessons that involved the war. "'I remember its universal fascination to all of us, "'for all that it had ended twelve or thirteen years before we were born. "'Almost every boy in the school could identify the silhouette of a Dornier "'and a Heinkel, and draw hurricanes, spitfires, and panzer tanks. "'Yet not once do I remember a single master refer to war as a personal experience.' I would have bombarded, strafed, and sniped them with questions, had I known. It puzzles me still, this silence of old soldiers. Looking up at the names of the old boys always made me think of the war. Although the school had only been founded in 1935, those names above the ships looked like the names of the war-dead. They shared that same melancholy permanence. A contemporary school roll, however outré or grand the names, always sounds perky and chipper the school-roll of a generation ago has the sombre, muffled note of a funeral bell. I had not been staring up at Lapoidevin and Winship and Mallet for long before I saw, reflected in the glass case of the ships, the study door open at the end of the corridor. I turned. Cromie stood in the doorway and beckoned with a single curling finger. I walked down the corridor jauntily. Somehow I knew the game was up. "'I think, too, that I knew that it was right that it was up. "'Like a scared mutt, darting out from between his master's legs, "'bunts, shot from the study, and rocketed down the corridor towards me. "'I caught the rolling whites of his eyes as he passed, "'and thought I heard a panted word, which may have been, "'Sorry.' "'As I approached Cromie and the open study door, "'he turned to the six or seven boys who were hanging around, "'pretending to talk to the parrots and examine the pictures on the walls. "'What are you lot doing here?' he yelled. "'Nothing better to do? Want some extra work?' They fled in instant, silent panic. Now there was only me in the corridor, walking towards Cromie, who was framed against the doorway, his outline dark against the window at the back of his study. The corridor seemed to be getting longer and longer, as in some truth-drug-induced hallucination scene in The Avengers or Man in a Suitcase. Still his finger seemed to beckon. Still every step that I took seemed to take me further from him. When the door did close behind us, the room was deadly quiet, and the sounds of the school could not be heard. Even the parrots and the minor bird had fallen into silence. Cromie turned towards the window where the shutters were, the shutters that housed the canes. Of course you know, said Cromie with a sigh, that I'm going to beat you. "'Don't you, Fry?' I nodded and licked my lips. "'I would just like to believe,' he went on, "'that you know why.' I nodded again. "'To go to the village shop is one thing. "'To send a boy like Bunce to go in your place is quite another. "'Let us not fool ourselves. "'Bunce would never have gone unless at your bidding. "'If you can see how cowardly that is, "'how vile and low and cowardly!' and perhaps there is a scintilla of hope for you. That was the first time, I remember, that I ever heard the word scintilla. It is funny how the exact meaning of a new word can be so precisely understood in all its connotations, just from its first hearing. Eight strokes, I think,' said Cromie. "'The most I have ever given. I hope never to have to give so many again.' Bunce never forgave himself, in all the time I knew him, for letting me down— he remained convinced that somehow he could have played it better. He should have swaggered, acted the part of the real, wicked, dyed-in-the-wool village shopper. I wanted to hug him for his sweetness, just a great hug to reward such goodness of nature. I wanted to hug myself too. I wanted to hug myself for fooling Cromie. He still didn't get it. "'still didn't know the real truth. "'I had stolen his sweets, stolen money from his pupils, "'and verbally tortured a fine child into lying for me. "'And all I had been beaten for "'was the schoolmasterly crime of being a bad influence. "'The boys of Cundle Manor School loved me to tell them that story "'when I was a schoolmaster in the late seventies. "'I didn't paint myself in quite the terrible colours I should have done. "'I left out the parts involving real theft.' "'but otherwise I told it as it was, and they loved it. "'Tell it again, sir, the story of you and Bunce. "'Go on, sir.' "'And I would light my pipe and tell them. "'I look back now at Stout's Hill, "'closed during my first term at Cambridge, "'and I shake my head at the person I was. "'The child was more malevolent, I think, than the adolescent, "'because at least the adolescent had love as an excuse. "'All the child wanted was to tear at sweets with his teeth.' It never quite managed to move with the times, Duds Hill. Aunt Cromie was ambitious and built a fine theatre, but he never liked the idea of too many day boys. The fees were high, the uniform remained fabulously classy, and meanwhile the parents became less interested in ponies and Greek and more interested in common entrance results and money. They had voted Mrs Thatcher in, and they voted out Cloud the pony and the boathouse and the lake and the old majors and commanders. On my bookshelf I still have a copy of Fitzroy MacLean's Eastern Approaches, lent to me by Paddy Angus's husband Ian. I really must send it back to him sometime. Fitzroy MacLean is dead now, and so is Stout's Hill. I wonder what those who have used it as a timeshare facility make of the place. I wonder if I left any guilt and shame in the air. I wonder if Bunce's grief at his own goodness is soaked into the walls. I was happy there. Which is to say, I was not unhappy there. Unhappiness and happiness I have always been able to carry about with me, irrespective of place and people, because I have never joined in. Falling in. Uppingham School was founded in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, but, like most public schools, did nothing but doze lazily where it was, in the cute little county of Rutland, deep in prime hunting country, until the nineteenth century, when a great pioneering headmaster, as great pioneering headmaster's will, kicked it up the backside and into a brief blaze of glory. Uppingham's great pioneering headmaster was Edward Thring, and one must suppose that he had some connection with Gapitus and Thring, the scholastic agency. Certainly, Edward Thring founded the Headmasters Conference, the public school's defining body. Even today, if you are not a member of the HMC, you are not a public school, merely an independent. Thring believed, like all Victorian pioneering headmasters, in simply enormous side-whiskers, and in the whole boy. Uppingham School under his command, was the first public school in Britain to build a swimming pool. Thring encouraged the development of carpentry, woodwork, pottery, printing, and crafts. He believed that every child had a talent, and that it was the duty of the school to find it. If a boy was a duffer at Latin, Greek, or the mathematics, Thring argued, then something else must be found at which he could excel, for every boy is good at something.' Edward Thring had wider and more substantial sideburns by far than Thomas Arnold of rugby school, but Uppingham had no Webb Ellis to invent a new field game, and no Thomas Hughes to invent a new literary genre, and thus, despite the staggering impressiveness of Thring's whiskers that flew from his cheeks like banners of flame, Uppingham never quite attained rugby's heights of fame and glory, and throughout the passage of the twentieth century it slowly floated down to its current middle level of middle-class, middle-brow, middle-England, middledom. The English have a positive mania for attaching the word philosophy to the most rudimentary and banal platitudes. Our philosophy is to please the customer. Do as you would be done by, that's my philosophy. A blend of traditional comfort and modern convenience is very much the Thistle Hotel's philosophy that kind of nonsense. The word gets its most savage mistreatment in the mouths of that peculiarly pompous animal, the public school headmaster, that creature so ruthlessly and brilliantly slaughtered, stuffed, mounted, and put on permanent display by Peter Jeffrey in Lindsay Anderson's film masterpiece, If. The public school headmaster and the public school prospectus use the word philosophy, much as Californian valley girls use the word like, ceaselessly, and senselessly. It was very much Uppingham's philosophy, for example, to apply the precepts and principles of Edward Thring to the modern world. In other words, they had added a metalwork division and a screen-printing room to the carpentry shop. It was very much Uppingham's philosophy to develop the potential of every pupil. In other words, the school's A-level results and Oxbridge success rate were well below the average.' It was very much Uppingham's philosophy, even in my day, unironically expressed, to turn out polite, cheerful, all-round chaps. In other words, the average Uppinghamian is a well-mannered, decent fellow with a stout heart, but not too much between the ears. If all this sounds like mocking criticism, it is not meant to. Well-mannered, decent fellows with stout hearts and not too much between the ears were the gravy and potatoes of two world wars, The well-maintained memorials in Uppingham catalogue a greater role of the dead than the size of the school warrants. If other, smarter schools provided the brilliant generals and tacticians who moved counters on maps at Staff HQ, then Uppingham served up the gallant young fellows who sprang so cheerfully and so unquestioningly up from the trench ladders, leading their men into the certainty of muddy, bloody slaughter. What is more, Uppinghamians who survived would never be so unsporting or so tasteless as to write clever, sceptical poetry about the experience afterwards. There is a word which still means much to the English, and which was for many years a rod for my back, a spur to prick the sides of my intent, a fury from which to flee, a nemesis, an enemy, an anathema, a totem, a bugaboo, and an accusation.' "'I still recoil at its usage and its range of connotation. "'The word stands for everything I have always wanted not to be "'and everything and everyone I have felt apart from. "'It is the shibboleth of the club I would never join, could never join, "'the club outside whose doors I might stand jeering, "'while all the time a secret part of me watched with wretched self-loathing "'as the elected members pushed through the revolving doors, "'whistling, happy, and self-assured.' the word is healthy, a word that needs some unpicking. Its meaning derives from whole and hale, and is cognitively related to such words as holy and healing. Heal is to wheel, as the eleven plus might say, as health is to wealth. To be healthy is to be whole and holy. To be unhealthy is to be unclean and unholy, insanitary and insane." For the English, the words healthy and hale, at their best, used to carry the full-bellied weight of florid good cheer, cakes and ale, halidum and festive Falstaffian winter wassail. By the end of the seventeenth century, the hale health of pagan holiday was expelled from the feasting hall, along with Falstaff and Sir Toby Belch, by the sombre, holy-day piety and po-faced Puritanism of Malvolio, Milton and Prynne. Health! became no longer a bumping boozer's toast, but a quality of the immortal soul. Health no longer went with heartiness, but with purity. "'For your soul's health's sake,' said the priest. Thomas Arnold, and behind him Edward Thring, and a squadron of other great Victorian pioneering headmasters, whiskers flowing in the breeze, found a new meaning for health. They twisted a poor Roman satirist's cynical hope into the maxim of the muscular Christian— Men sana incorpore sano. A healthy body makes a healthy mind became the willfully syllogistic mistranslation upon which a philosophy was founded. Cleanliness, generation upon generation of Britons were led to believe, was next to godliness. Health of body was to be looked upon as an outward and visible sign, to misappropriate the glorious poetry of the Eucharist, of an inward and spiritual health. Thring had some reason to believe in health where health meant hygiene. During his headmastership of Uppingham School, he had become infuriated by Uppingham Town's refusal to do something about its sewers, whose antiquity and medieval inefficiency were causing regular outbreaks of typhus and typhoid amongst pupils and staff. With the furious energy and implacable will of all great Victorians, he moved the entire school, hundreds of miles away, to the seaside village of Borth in Wales, until such time as Uppingham's local economy suffered enough to force its burghers to do something about their sanitation, and literally to clean up their act. Thring and the school returned in triumph to a hygienic Uppingham, and the school's Borth Day is annually celebrated still. It is one thing to build sanitation systems that inhibit the breeding of unhealthy bacteria and bacilli, but it is another to build educational systems that inhibit the breeding of unhealthy ideas and beliefs. Besides, while we can universally agree that cholera, typhus, and typhoid are unhealthy, we are unable to come anywhere close to consensus as to the healthiness or otherwise of ideas.' I suppose today the fashionable word to apply is meme, the evolutionary scientist's new buzzword, a concept that applies the model of the selfish gene and the greedily self-replicating virus to movements in thought, to philosophies, religions, political tendencies, trends in individualism and sexual license, to growth, development, change, and ideodiversity in everything from the rights of animals to the rights of man.' One model is as good as another, but today's memologists kid themselves if they think they were the first to look on ideas as diseases. Their twist is to call religion the virus, where their predecessors looked on atheism, humanism, and free thinking as the contagions. Scientists bring the pure neutrality of fusis and the beautiful, self-working holiness of nature to bear upon the problem. Their grandfathers, Charles Darwin's furious contemporaries, invoked the Bible, the edicts of empire, and that curious Victorian morality that believed worthiness to be the same as worth, and healthiness the same as health. The religiosity of the public schools had sown into it, praise the Lord, the seeds of its own destruction, for the cornerstone of public school education was a study of the languages of classical antiquity, Latin and Greek, and a study of the classics leads the alert reader away from the revealed claims of ecclesiasticism and towards the beauty and holiness of Socrates, Plato, and Lucretius. Uppingham School has very few alumni of whom it can boast in terms of that fell-whore fame. The odd politician, Stephen Dorrell being the current foremost example, the even odder explorer and eccentric, the Campbells, Donald and Malcolm, for example, an odd actor or two, William Henry Pratt was in my house, and achieved eternal glory under the wisely altered name of Boris Karloff. The great director John Schlesinger was there too, but very few writers and artists. Indeed, the best-known writers to have attended Uppingham include a most exotic trio of early twentieth-century miners. James Elroy Flecker, for example, a poet and dramatist whose best-known work, Hassan, was set to incidental music by Delius and contains splendid mock Arabian felicities like, Shall I then put down the needle of insinuation and pick up the club of statement? And the couplet that should be the motto of every unhealthy schoolboy, For lust of knowing what should not be known, we take the golden road to Samarkand. Flecker's contemporary at Uppingham was the exotic Arthur Annesley, better known as Ronald Furbank, whose books included Vainglory, Valmouth, and Sorrow in the Sunlight, unfortunately retitled as Prancing Nigger. Furbank remains even today near the top of the essential reading list of every well-read literary queen. He was a great favourite of better writers, like Evelyn Waugh, Aldous Huxley, and Ivy Compton Burnett, and his writing exemplifies par excellence, that style of poisonous, luxuriant prose that Cyril Connolly defined as the Mandarin. As E. M. Forster wrote of him and his louche-created world of berettas, lace-stays, and pomanders, is he affected? Yes, always. Is he himself healthy? Perish the thought." A little older, but longer lived than either, was Norman Douglas, the third of the Uppingham Triumvirate, and at one time a kind of literary and social hero to me, and a writer whose first editions I still collect to this day. Here is something that Douglas wrote about Uppingham in his 1933 memoir, Looking Back. A mildewy, scriptural odour pervaded the institution. It reeked of Jeroboam and Jesus. The masters struck me as supercilious humbugs the food was so vile that for the first day or two after returning from holidays I could not get it down. The only good which ever came out of the place was cheese from the neighbouring Stilton, and that, of course, they never gave us. And the charges! On my mother's death I found among her papers those Uppingham accounts. God, how they swindled her! I dare say all that is changed now." The mildewy scriptural odour and that reek of Jeroboam and Jesus still sometimes hung in the air around the more solid Victorian buildings of Uppingham during my time there, and we were certainly never fed on Stilton, but otherwise the place had certainly, as Douglas dared say, changed. The fees were, and still are, steeper than those of many schools with better reputations, but I don't think it could be accused of swindling." Most of the masters struck me as supercilious humbugs, too, but then schoolmasters always strike cocky adolescents as supercilious humbugs. If anyone was a supercilious humbug, it was most certainly me. What I adored about Douglas and about Furbank is that they were, as Forster said, unhealthy. The black bombazine bombast of their Victorian childhoods and educations gave those two writers a deep yearning for light, colour, exoticism, and the pagan, in Furbank's case the Morian paganism of the Romish church, in Douglas's the real paganism of Dryads, Fauns, and the great god Pan. They strove instinctively for a style that is the antithesis of blackness and bombast, and the best word for that style is not Connolly's Mandarin, but Camp. What is camp? A much misunderstood word. Everyone has their own feel for it. Here is mine. Camp is not in rugby football. Camp is not in the Old Testament. Camp is not in St. Paul. Camp is not in Latin lessons, though it might be in Greek. Camp loves colour. Camp loves light. Camp takes pleasure in the surface of things. Camp loves paint as much as it loves paintings. "'Camp prefers style to the stylish. "'Camp is pale. "'Camp is unhealthy. "'Camp is not English, Damn it! "'But camp is not kitsch. "'Camp is not drag. "'Camp is not nearly so superficial as it would have you believe. "'Camp casts out all fear. "'Camp is strong. "'Camp is healthy. "'And, let's face it, camp is queer.' Mostly. How much a sensitive heterosexual boy is drawn to the silks, the light, the paganism, the poison, and the luxury of camp is a question. How much a straight boy needs an alternative world, that too is a question. If he does need one, it is more easily found ready-made in the contemporary outside of rock and roll, sport, cars, and girls so easily found that it is not really an alternative world at all, merely one that is just different enough in emphasis from that of the older generation to enable the youth to feel rebellious and wroughty. A boy who knows that he is other, who knows that the world is not made for him, who reads the code implicit in words like healthy and decent, he may well be drawn to the glaring light and savage dark of the ancient world, and the poisonous colours, and heavy, dangerous musks that lie the other side of the door into the secret garden, the door held open by Pater Wilde Douglas Furbank, even Forster himself, missish and prim as he could be. Without the benefits of a classical education, A boy growing up knowing his difference might, in my day, have been drawn to The Wizard of Oz, cabaret, musicals, glam rock, and fashion. Today, the gay boy in every section of society has a world of gay music, dance, and television to endorse his identity.' "'Manchester has its gay village. "'London has Old Compton Street. "'The gay world meets daily to chat, cruise, and invigorate itself on the internet. "'They don't need a parcel of old tuffs historically sequestered in Capri and Tangier "'to tell them who they are and where they come from "'and whether or not they have the right to hold their heads up high. "'I did need them, however. "'I needed them desperately, and without them I am not sure what I would have done to myself.' Queers are not the only unhealthy people to contaminate English society, of course. There are Jews, too.